Welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. I'm Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut. My co-host, Mark Dunn in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, how y'all doing out there? How are y'all doing down there? That's yeah, the question. Yeah, we're doing great down here. We've got some rain recently, so everyone's happy about that. I just flew up from the bayou from Louisiana to my cousin's wedding, and we drove through a rain belt going down, and we drove through the same rain belt coming back. Well, the rain is definitely welcome right now, I can tell you that. So, Carl, uh, what's new in the world of .NET this week? Have you uh, seen anything interesting? Yeah, as a matter of fact, coming back on the plane uh, from Louisiana, I was reading a PC magazine where Bill Gates sort of was talking about the next version of .NET, and uh, you remember how in the last show we were sort of uh, getting, you know, Billy and I and you, we were all talking about Microsoft's marketing message and how we think they missed the boat a little bit. Well, it sounds like more of the same. It was sort of like, uh, well, there's a still still this focus on interoperability, but he used the buzzword uh, real-time collaboration and communications uh, twice in the same sentence. So he's really, really pushing that. There's going to be a, more of a focus on security uh, in web services, it sounded like, although that's not the language he used. It was a little more general. But um, But there's still... You know, still going after that web service stuff. Yeah, I don't think they're going to ease up on that too much. Oh, hopefully they will. But that was a good show with Billy, wasn't it? That sure was. Billy's always a great guy to talk to. And, uh, yeah, we've got a great guest for tonight, too, don't we? Yeah, that's right. Our our guest tonight's from San Jose, California. He is uh, quite quite an amazing guy. And uh, he's a seasoned software architect and author. Uh, he's really into the .NET uh, C-sharp language and does a lot of work with enterprise services. Um, one of the world's top 20 .NET speakers and experts designated by Microsoft to promote .NET worldwide. And he also uh, helped found the Bay Area .NET User Group and chairs the program committee of Bay.NET. Uh, will you please welcome Mr. Juval Lowy. Hi, guys. How are you? Hey, doing great, Juval. It's great to have you with us tonight. My pleasure. So enterprise services is certainly an interesting topic. I uh, can't wait to get into it tonight. Have you ever done Complus or MTS in the past? Uh, yes, I started out working with MTS uh, back when it was in the option pack on NT4. Yeah. So certainly I'm excited about learning uh, the best ways to integrate .NET into that environment. Excellent. So, so Javal, about enterprise services, why don't we start at the beginning and tell the listeners what, in it, what enterprise services is and maybe where it came from. Okay, so enterprise services is a set of component services designed to ease considerably developing enterprise applications. And it's the result of integrating Complus into that net. What's an enterprise application? That's officially. a very good question. <laughs> and I found that the term enterprise application means different things from different people. So for some it means the traditional term, which is large number of users where scalability and throughput is a must. But in reality, even if you have an application with fewer users, but with dramatic uh, spikes in load, or maybe fewer users who are using very expensive resources, Yeah. Or an application which is mission critical has to be up 24 by 7, zero downtime. Or maybe you're dealing with uh, extremely sensitive information. Or maybe you have to interoperate with a very wide range of platforms. And I found that 
the commonality or in the abstract of all those type of applications is any application where quality and productivity are really a top priority. Because if you think about it, most applications today are basically toys. Somebody snaps a button on a form connected to some data repository and that's your application. And most applications today do not have everything that I listed before. But if you have any of those, or usually actually have a combination of those, you simply cannot afford not to be productive. You cannot right. afford to compromise on quality. Yeah. And if 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 you are trying to do the things that it takes to develop an enterprise application without using enterprise services, you're pretty much looking at a hopeless task. So, hey, Javal, what does enterprise services really bring to the table? What am I what am I going to get from that? You're going to get a set of component services that you can use each and one of them independently. You're going to combine them in a very powerful and synergetic way. There's services for controlling instance management, things like object pooling and just-in-time activation. There's things that control the way your application is going to be activated, whether it's going to be a library application or a server application or maybe a service. There's, of course, transaction management, a distribution of transactions, there's concurrency management, there's loosely coupled events, there's acute uh, components for synchronous calls, there's a huge infrastructure for security dealing with authorization, authentication, identity, impersonation. And that security model is different from, it's specific to ComPlus, so that's different from the .NET security model? Um, it's actually, it's a ComPlus security model. Right. So you're already talking about role-based security? I'm also talking about authentication. By default, .NET applications are not secure. If you have machine A talking to machine B with version 1.0 of .NET, that communication is insecure, meaning no authentication takes place and uh, anybody could read what goes on on the other stream. And you have to really get out of your way to propagate security credentials, to do authorization, to do role-based security cross machines. With enterprise services, it's built into it. Oh, okay. And on top of that, you have very easy way of doing remote calls and integration with web services. And typically developers don't use just a particular service, they use uh, a combination of them. Hmm. And right, that that's very interesting. I, I always thought MTS was, was really a bad name, uh, Microsoft Transaction Server. Uh, really, it was a long list of features that you just gave us. Uh, it's really a full-featured object request broker that we're talking about. For an ASP in the Java world, yes. If you think about the evolution of enterprise services, it starts way back at 1996 with the release of MTS 1.0. And like you said, MTS was a very bad name for technology because developers who didn't need transactions said, well, we don't need transactions, so we don't need MTS, and completely ignored all the other services it gave you, like instance management, deployment, activation, security. And MTS actually had even a second release in 1998, but by the time Windows 2000 came around, Microsoft realized it's a very bad name, so they actually went the other extreme and called it ComPlus, so that any Com developer would think that this is maybe an advanced Com or something that every Com developer needs. And so you had conferences going all over ComPlus and such, and that went on for about uh, two years about the release of .NET, where Microsoft painted itself into a corner because ComPlus sounds way too commish to be related to .NET. 
Right. right. And now they're calling it Enterprise Services. I actually suggested to Microsoft to call it .NET Plus, <laughs> which would be a very appropriate name. Sure. But they chose a more uh, functional name. Right. I'm sure the guys were hard at work in the acronym lab for those two years trying to figure out what we're going to call it. That's right. And well, most developers today actually realize that enterprise services are as pertinent to .NET as the word to come. And in fact, the integration between .NET and enterprise services is better than the integration between COM and COM+, which is rather uh, surprising if you think about it. Yes, that certainly is. Uh, you're saying that the integration between COM plus and .NET is actually faster than COM plus and COM? I didn't say faster. I said it's better. Better. Okay. Yeah. And it's better because in the world of COM plus and COM, there was actually no way of capturing in your code your services configuration. Oh, okay, right. And from a configuration management standpoint, that doesn't make any sense that you only do the backup and the version control on code but not on the attributes which greatly affect your code and actually part of your design. With right. .NET, because you can actually capture the metadata in the form of attributes, you have a way of uh, better controlling your versioning and your configuration management. And just let me clarify that point uh, for the listeners who might not be familiar with programming COM plus services in .NET. The way that you configured your applications in COM plus, you know, with COM applications, with ActiveX DLLs in other words, is you would go into the uh, the Complus catalog and you would open up your application and set a big list, a big laundry list of properties, and you'd have to go in with user interface and do a lot of manual con configuration. And now those properties or the the information, the metadata uh, about those components can be compiled right into the code. That's right. And in fact, there's another way. There's a third way of of doing it, which is programmatically. So there's three ways of configuring. Enterprise services is declaratively using attributes. There's administratively using the uh, component services explorer, which is what you described. Yeah. And there's programmatic, which is making explicit calls into the repository where the services are, are configured. And it turns out that none of these services is superior to all other in every absolute respect. Because some things you can only do programmatically, some things you can only do administratively, and most things you can do uh, declaratively. Right, so the idea with the component is that it's configurable by an administrator uh, as well, right? So the Complus Explorer, uh, for instance, is just an interface that we can use to change the behavior of a component in that environment. That's right. And some of the changes should not be made by system administrators. And that was actually another deficiency of COM, meaning if you had a component that required transactions, that was really part of your design. You couldn't have some system administrator go off and turning off and yeah. turning off transactions on your components. Right. Now, some of the configurations are deployment specific, like object pooling and the size of the pool. That can be a deployment specific parameter or subscription to event classes. You may or may not have certain event classes on the customer machine that you want to subscribe to. Uh, hey, Carl, we have a caller on the line. This is Heather Barnard from Washington, D.C., with a question for Javal. All right. Hi, Javal. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. Javal, what does Enterprise Services give me that Basic.net doesn't? Heather, have you seen the movie The Matrix? Yes, I have. Remember the scene where they're giving him the option of choosing a blue pill and a red pill? Oh, yes. Right. So if you take, for the listener who haven't seen the movie, if you take 
the uh, blue pill, you go back to being a drone and you never know actually that there's this parallel universe, but if you take the red pill, there's this parallel universe and you become aware of it and so on, right? Right. So Enterprise Services is pretty much the same thing. There's basic.net, which is like the blue pill, and you can click your buttons and, and drop widgets on forms and never know any better. And Enterprise Services offer a parallel universe to uh, the basic.net, which is as rich as comp- and, and, and intricate as the .NET itself. And every, every one of the services that basic.net provides, there's a parallel, more powerful service that Enterprise Services provide. For example, if you look at .NET events, sure, it's very easy to set up a delegate and hook it up to a subscriber, but you basically couple the lifeline of the publisher and the subscriber. Both have to be alive and running to fire the event. There's no way for you to say to .NET, I want to subscribe to a type of an event. Anybody sending this kind of an event, I want to know about it. There's no way for you to say to .NET, if somebody fires this sort of an event, create an instance of that object over there and let's handle the event. Okay. And this is something that Enterprise Services let you do. It's called loosely coupled events because you decouple the subscriber from the publisher. So that's just one of many things. That though. is just of many. .NET, Basic.net in ADO.net has transactions okay. using ADO.net. Right. But it, you cannot distribute it across multiple machines and multiple uh, databases using multiple objects. With enterprise services transactions, it's very easy to actually do that. In fact, it's easier than using ADO.NET because with ADO.NET, you have to explicitly begin a transaction and enlist the resource. With enterprise services, you just add an attribute and it will do it for you. .NET has built-in support for asynchronous calls, but typically in enterprise application, you want to make a call which is not only asynchronous, but also disconnected. Asynchronous. And if the server is down, you still want to make the call, have it queued, and have somebody play back the call to the server. This is called uh, queued components in enterprise services. Okay. In .NET, there's security, but it's by default per machine only. So you cannot actually have a way of propagating security credentials across machines. It's very easy to do it in enterprise services. In .NET, if you want to have a web service, you need to add a web method attribute. With enterprise services on .NET server, you can simply add or check a checkbox, and any component can become a web service. So all in all, it's enrichment and uh, offering of services which makes you incredibly productive and giving you tools and weapons in your arsenal that makes developing applications that have to have these sort of features very easy. Sounds like uh, we all have a lot of homework to do about enterprise services. In fact, there's, a, there's probably more than 20 services. And the real learning curve is not just learning a particular service, it's also on the interaction between different services and how they affect each other. Because you could have, let me give you a very uh, uh, typical example, you could have something which does a transaction, which is also a pulled object. And Mm -hmm. you can start saying, maybe let's make that one a loosely coupled event subscriber. And so every time he gets an event, .NET is going to take it out of the pool, give it the event, push it back in the pool. And you could then say, hey, how about if we make the event publishing itself queued? And so anybody can fire events at it, and it's going to be queued and, and played back to it later on. So even if the network is down, you still get the event and so on. Javal, is enterprise services using com interrupt to manage all the services? To a certain extent, yes. The way enter- enterprise services works is that it puts an interceptor 
between the client and the object, and the interceptor is doing pre-call processing and post-call processing. For example, if it's a, if it's a, a transaction interceptor, the pre-call processing is going to be to begin a transaction, and the post-call processing is going to be to commit or abort a transaction if you, if you had an exception. Other interceptors can do security checks or thread locking and unlocking and so on. The way the architecture of enterprise services, the way it works today, is when the client always interacts with the object using a proxy. The mm -hmm. proxy looks at the configuration of the object and constructs a string of interceptors. The interceptors are implemented in unmanaged code, and so the proxy makes an interop call to the services, asking them to start a transaction or get the object from the pool and so on. When the call returns to the proxy, it actually makes a managed code to the object. So the call itself never leaves managed world. Now, mm. the penalty for interop is usually when you actually have to start converting types from the .NET type system to the outside world and back, and you never pay that penalty when, when enterprise services uh, take place. When the call returns to the proxy, it makes another interop call to the interceptors, asking them to do post-call processing. Okay. And that part of, of the plumbing has been highly optimized, so you actually don't miss that much uh, if you're using enterprise services. Hmm. In the future, even the interceptors are going to be implemented in managed code. But remember, the underlying services, things like the distributed mm -hmm. transaction coordinator or the DTC, are probably always going to be part of the unmanaged operating system, just like if you're doing Windows forms, it's always going to be relying on Windows, at least in this version of Windows. Okay. Excellent. Well, Heather, does that answer your question? That does. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Thanks for the call. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, I got I bet another. I didn't know that, Carl. No, I didn't know that. Um, I always I had always heard that uh you know, that that you had to go through the com layer just about for everything. Right, and I Carl and I were talking earlier about this. I had a student uh in class once that effectively told me the same thing and I I did not know that either. So in, See that? in fact, I didn't believe him at first. So uh, now, now you've convinced me. That's great. See now, people, you can only get this stuff right here on .NET Rocks at www.franklins.net. And at franklins.net, we have lots of other ways that we support the .NET community. We teach weekend VB.NET classes. Myself and Russ Fastino. We teach a five-day VB.NET hands-on master class and we also teach a SQL Server class and an advanced ADO.NET class. You can learn all about that and download sample code and all that great stuff at www.franklins.net. Can we pick them or what, Mark? You bet, Carl. <laughs> all right, we have another caller, Rich Sabo from Marietta, Georgia. You're on .NET Rocks. You got a question for Juval? I do, as a matter of fact. Um, I was wondering if there was... Um any compelling reasons to use COMPLUS through components when all I have is a single server database, SQL Server database on the back end? And then as kind of a follow-up, if I do write that component, um, do I have any deployment issues that are going to be involved with that? Great question. Okay, so I assume that you're actually going to need transaction support for your components regardless whether you're going to use enterprise services or not. Correct. Okay, so in .NET, you have two options. You could use ADO.NET transaction using an interface called IDB transaction. We have to explicitly begin a transaction on the server, letting it know that the transaction starts. And then at the end, you have to explicitly tell it to commit or abort. 
and that works fine. The problems with it is that you cannot add more objects to the game or you cannot add more databases later on. So if your application will evolve in the future, your transaction model will not work. In my opinion, that model, that transaction model in ADO.net is only available if you want to interact with a database that supports transactions but doesn't support complex transactions. It's not what is known as a resource manager. Okay. If you're interacting with any of the famous ones, SQL Server, DB2, Oracle, those guys, there is really uh, no reason not to use enterprise services. First of all, it's easier to use it than using ADO.net because you don't have to do any of the work. What about performance, Jubal? There is about, well, depend on your calling pattern, of course. If you're doing any distributed application, meaning you're making cross-machine calls and such, there's no signif- there's, there's actually no overhead because network latency is, is orders of magnitude more than the difference between enterprise services and ADO.net. Right, Javal, I've always thought that whenever you do this through a COM plus component, you're forcing it to load the distributed transaction coordinator, even if you're not really doing a distributed transaction across multiple databases. I, you know, would, would it not be better to maybe write a stored procedure as far as performance goes? Well, you can still use stored procedures and enterprise services. You don't have to do just raw SQL. And the DTC is a system service. It's always running. Now, you could actually come up with, and Microsoft did this internally, and they found out that in some intense calling patterns on the same machine when there's no remote calls and such, there is about 15% performance difference between uh, using enterprise services and ADO.net. Now, two comments on that. First, in future releases of .NET, this difference is going to go away. And second, there is always this tension between performance and scalability. ADO.NET transactions do not scale. Enterprise services transactions, because you could hook them up with the instance management services like pooling and just-in-time activation, would give you far better scalability than ADO.NET. Now, in general, in any application, you always trade off performance for scalability. So the performance per request is going to be lower, but your ability to handle many more clients at the same time goes up. Hmm. It sounds like some some really kind of heady design decisions have to be made when designing distributed applications. Uh, And really, you need to know what the environment is doing and how it behaves. How about uh, Rich's second question, which is, is is there an issue with uh, distribution? .NET offers you, in general, a spectrum about doing everything. And at one end of the spectrum, you have X copy, just copy the files to the client machine, it will work. On the other hand, you have registering in the GAC, in the global assembly cache, providing custom version binding policies, and so on. And you really have to learn to apply the right tool for the right job. It turns out that X copy is only intended for the most trivial applications. Now, in general, in enterprise applications, will not rely on XCopy, even if it's not using enterprise services. You are going to have to put it in the GAC. You will provide custom version policies, custom security policies, and so on. Now, independent of that, deploying an enterprise services application doesn't uh, force you to go to any end of the spectrum. You can still use XCopy. And there's something called dynamic registration, where when the client is making a call, into an object that makes use of enterprise services, .NET will detect that 
register the object in the enterprise services catalog, configure it properly, and uh, make use of enterprise services. On the other end of the spectrum, you could actually put the object in the GAC and do manual registration using a command line utility. And there's pros and cons of using both schemas. If you're relying on dynamic registration, the user has to be a system administrator. If you're using the command line utility, an administrator can actually do a batch installation. In addition, if you're using dynamic installation, you cannot take advantage of any service which is deployment specific. Sometimes you want to have on a customer site, uh, on di between different customer sites, you're going to have different, config different configurations. For example, the decision whether you're going to have pooling or not is a design decision, but the exact pool size can be deployment specific. You may want to use loosely coupled events, but subscribing to a particular event class may depend on the question whether it's present on the customer machine, and so on. So dynamic expression would not give you deployment-specific configuration. So, you're, so again, it's a spectrum on its own. So you're saying basically that you you don't have any more deployment issues with COM plus enterprise services in .NET than you would with a regular .NET uh, installation. In other words, if the framework is there, and obviously Windows 2000 or XP is what you're using enterprise services for. Um, Correct. Uh, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. You can still use XCopy, and you can still use uh, highly fine-tuned, customized installations, and there's advantages of using both. Right. Right, and I, I want to back up to something you said and make sure I caught caught that right. For dynamic registration to work, you said the user had to be logged on as an administrator when accessing the component. Is that correct? That's right. Right. That That's something I did not realize. I've read about dynamic registration, but didn't realize you had to be an admin before it would work. Oh, yes, because the Enterprise Services Catalog is just like uh, the registry or any, other, any, of those of, any one of those valuable system resources that only privileged users can actually use. Well, it makes sense. Sure does. If it's not, think of it from a security perspective. One of the services that you get is, of course, security. If you are going to allow non-administrators to right. modify security, maybe turn it off completely, that's a security breach. Yeah, it's the same point Billy Hollis made earlier, which is, you know, that because there isn't really a good way to deploy security policies, you know, just with, you know, just by sending around an email or something, because the user actually has to touch it as an administrator to get it to go into place. Right, but in that respect, enterprise services is, is no worse off than conventional .NET. Right. Now, you did say something about earlier earlier on about security in uh, COM Plus being more robust than security in .NET. And one of the reasons that you cited was being able to roll out security policy more than machine-wide. In other words, being able to control the security policy across an enterprise. How does that work? It's not just across the enterprise. It's .NET security out of the box does not work with remoting, meaning if machine A makes a call to machine B, and on machine A we have uh, user Joe, when the call comes to machine B, the fact that it was Joe is 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 gone. It's completely anonymous call. There's no way to propagate security credentials. Unless you do it yourself. Unless manually. you do it yourself with a lot of heavy lifting. Right. And there's also no authentication on, on the call itself, meaning even if you use the advanced classes to propagate, it's called the logical call context across machines, en route, 
there's no security, it's not encrypted or anything. And when it comes to uh, machine B, all it says is, I am Joe. There's no way for you to authenticate that Joe is really Joe. Now, on Windows, for years, we have mechanisms like NTLM and Kerberos that deal with authentication. Right. But with, no, with basic.net, you have no access to those. Cross-machine communication is not authenticated. With enterprise services, you have to get out of your way to make it non-authenticated. Huh. So is that a way? Can you marry the two? Can you marry remoting and enterprise services to make cross-machine calls uh, secure? Oh, of course. In fact, you can use .NET uh, remoting, even if it's using enterprise services. Okay. You can, in which case, by the way, you're not going to have secure channels. Right. You can use DCOM, even if it's .NET to .NET, in which case you're going to get secure channels, and you can also use web services. Okay. Well, uh, Rich, does that answer your question? It does. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Thanks for the call, Rich. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, Carl and Juval, we've got another caller on the line. This is Curtis Chapman from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Curtis. What's your question for Juval, Juval tonight? Well, my question is, what are loosely coupled events and why will we ever need them in that net? Great question. Yeah. Okay. Loosely coupled events are an effective way of decoupling components and systems. And they also offer other capabilities like security and queuing and transactions. The problem with basic.net, which is, which is using events with delegates, is if you're a client and you want to receive events from from publishers, you have to go and find them. You have to know who is available, who is going to publish an event, and you have to go and hook it up to them. And that couples the lifeline of both the publisher and the subscribers because both have, both have to be alive and running and aware of each other when they actually make uh, fire an event. And the client cannot say, I want to subscribe to anybody on the system that can fire this type of an event. Yeah. And there's no way of doing administrative setting of connections because often in enterprise environment, you want to have a way of looking up at all the other systems that you have. And maybe there's a canonical event service that somebody uh, deployed. And you're saying, ah, I have this service. I want to hook up to it. Yeah. And this is exactly what loosely coupled events let you do. Right. For example, if I had a traveling salesman with a notebook on the road and the application expected to communicate with the server through events, that's not going to work if he's not online. That's right, but that's not going to work strictly with loosely coupled events. You have to use uh, queued loosely coupled events on top of that. But the basic model, uh, what it actually means is instead of having the publisher directly fire an event at the subscriber, the publisher delivers the event to .NET. And .NET will look at its internal list of subscribers and deliver the event to them. And .NET actually provides this level of indirection between the publisher and the subscriber. And the way you actually provide event types is you create what is known as an event class, which is a class that has an event class attribute on it. And .NET will look at that and say, okay, this is a signature of what I have to replicate. And any publisher will create an instance of it, actually an instance of a .NET provided class that looks and smells just like the event class you provided, except .NET implementation would go and look up at the subscribers list. And there's actually two types of subscribers. There's transient and persistent. Persistent means the object is actually on the disk. And when somebody files the event that you subscribe to, .NET will look up that object, load the assembly, create the object, let it handle the event, and dispose of the object. 
And transient subscription is an object which is alive in memory, just like with normal .NET events waiting to receive an event. And the combination of these two is very powerful. So um, I got I to gotta be honest with you, Juval. I kind of lost you about halfway through there. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a VBNet programmer, and I use, um, you know, the, as far as I go with events is using AdHandler to, right. uh, you know, to, to handle an event of an object. Obviously, I'm gonna. I I know what the object is. I know what the name of the event is. I want to handle it. And now here in my code, what is loosely couple events going to give me that that model does not? What you described so far is oriented towards user interface, where you have a widget or a control on the form, and you bind things that the actual human that's, user is that's doing. That's not necessarily true. Well, I can fire an event in a business object. That's right. Now. Again, if you want to fire at the event of all the, sub the subscribers on your machine, they all have to somehow hook up with you. Right. And you have to set up that plumbing. With okay. those coupled events, it's the same client code regardless of whoever subscribed to it. Okay. All right, so it uses a publisher-subscriber uh, kind of pattern. That's exactly what it is. I see. And so basically, the uh, the loosely coupled events just like log everything that every user has ever done and put it into the event. I mean, not not user, but every every object has ever done. Well, it's it's not doing any logging. It's, as you publish the event, it delivers it to the subscriber. It delivers it to the subscriber. Yeah. Now, so what if there's like it, about like pardon? what if there's like about like a hundred subscribers on at once? Then it would uh, deliver it to them one at a time. Now. That's an excellent question because suppose you're using basic.net and you have a hundred subscribers, you have to start delivering the event to them one at a time. And that creates a problem because what if one of them is a non-disciplined subscriber that is doing lengthy processing on its event handling? Well, everybody else don't get the event and the publisher is still locked out until the subscriber is actually finished publishing, finished processing the event. And so traditionally, if you are doing this sort of thing, you always publish on another thread. You never actually publish on the main thread that the object lives on because uh, you want to continue servicing your customers. And with okay. basic.net, you really have to get out of your way to actually do asynchronous calling on threads from the thread pool. You so have to manually iterate over the uh, internal invocation list of the delegates and so on. With this couple of events, the uh, event class has a property called fire in parallel, and if you set it to true, it would spin off the thread to actually do the fire in parallel without okay. you lifting a finger. Right, and that's configurable. I, I seem to recall seeing a checkbox in the, uh, the Component Services Explorer that allows you to, uh, to turn that on and off. That's right. And again, with Enterprise Services, you don't have to actually go to the Component Services Explorer. You can just set an attribute or a property on the event class saying fire in parallel equals true, and that would uh, set it. It's exactly equivalent to checking the checkbox. Great. So, Curtis, does that answer your question? Well, then it pretty much answers my question. You know, .NET Rocks is becoming very popular. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you could take this spot right here in the next show. Just uh, send email to .NET Rocks at franklins.net. And uh, we'd be glad to get in touch with you as soon as we can. Hey, listen, I just wanted to highlight Mark Dunn's upcoming SQL class. Uh, it's a three-day SQL knuckle buster in November. And uh, the first day is spent on creating databases and indexes and all that great admin kind of stuff. 
But the next two days are all T-Sequel. It's all the real stuff for aimed for developers. Now Mark is a VBNet developer himself, so he's tailored this class especially for you, the .NET developer, uh, to take advantage of as much SQL as you possibly can. Check it out at www.franklins.net. Now let's get back to the show. Uh, Juval, uh, that was a great call. Uh, I just wanted to back up and talk about something that, that was mentioned. Uh, you said that uh, I could do queued loosely coupled events, and I know that I can do queued components as well. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why I would want to do that and how I would do it? With loosely coupled events, you can do both or either queued publisher and queued subscriber. And the queued publisher is when you actually publish the event, it's going to be queued. And once you're going to be connected again, it's going to be delivered to the subscriber. And the queued subscriber means even if the subscriber is down, when it's up, it's going to get the event. And you can actually use even both of them. And if you want to have, say, a queued subscriber, all you have to do is go to the Component Services Explorer and check a checkbox called queued, and you have it queued. And that's, that would make the event asynchronous and disconnected. It's a very powerful mechanism. Right, I've done that before. I noticed it creates the queues for you automatically. It's very neat. That's right. In fact, you don't have to do anything with MSMQ. It's all done for you under the hood. And queued components is a very elegant mechanism where... The client, instead of creating the actual object, creates what is known as a recorder. And the recorder records the client calls, converts them to a message to the MSMQ, sends it to the server. The server play, There's an entity on the server called the listener that detects it, creates a player that takes the message, converts it to method calls, and plays back to the object. Hmm. Right, so that's completely replacing the, uh, the RPC proxy stub. Uh, model that we're used to seeing, uh, the, the transport mechanism instead of an RPC now, is a message queue. Is that right? That's right. Jabal, does the uh, queuing services in ComPlus uh, basically take over for MSMQ, or do they work complementary? MSMQ doesn't know that uh, queued components actually exist. When you install an enterprise, a .NET enterprise application that is using Qt components, one of the assembly attributes indicates what level of queuing you want. And if you say, I want to have Qt components and I want to have a listener in my process, when you install the application, it will go to MSMQ, create the appropriate queues, and so on. And it's not just one queue. It's uh, MSMQ is a resource manager. That means it participates in a transaction. Okay. With asynchronous calls, there is always a problem of doing error handling because even if the object throws an exception, the client is not there to actually catch it and handle it or decide to call the method again and so on. And with Qt components, there is a built-in auto-retry mechanism. And the way the mechanism works is MSMQ participates in transactions. And so if the object throws an exception, the transaction that played the message to the object aborts and the message goes back to the queue, in which case the listener detects it and plays it back to the object. The problem with this uh, schema is what if the message is never going to succeed? That's called a poison message. Mm -hmm. And so when you install a .NET Enterprise application that is using queuing, it creates a hierarchy of queues and there's a, mes there's a message queue that the messages goes to first 
Then there's a set of rich IQs with ever-increasing interval between them, and so there's a set of heuristics you can, in a way, even configure that detects how many times .NET is going to try to play back the message and when it's going to deem something as a poison message and so on. Right, it eventually winds up in a dead letter queue uh, at the bottom, is that right? Right, if if all the retries actually failed, yes. So, Javal, uh, you wrote a book on this subject? Yes, it's called Common.NET Component Services, and queuing is uh, chapter 8 in that book. So where can we get that? At Amazon.com or yeah. your favorite bookstore? Yeah. Who's the, who's it's, the publisher? It's with uh, O'Reilly. Oh, great. So is my uh, next book. It's called Programming.net Components, and it should be out by the end of the year. Oh, that's great. So wh- what do you see as the future of uh, enterprise services? I think to, to understand where it's going, we have to look at the past. And when Microsoft introduced MTS, at first, it was just something bolted on top of COM. Neither COM or Windows knew about MTS. COM Plus was a fusion of MTS, COM, and Windows into something that they always was very much aware of and took advantage of COM. If you look at enterprise services today, it is sort of on top of .NET. And .NET itself is not aware of enterprise services, basic .NET, that is. And there's a whole namespaces and objects and such that do the interaction. I believe that in the future, much of the functionality of enterprise services is going to be fused and integrated better into .NET. The first step is going to be having managed interceptors, and we talked about that. Right. And we could even have uh, uh, better integration of... Or maybe integration is the wrong word, but we're going to actually enable things like transactions across web services. Today, if you're doing a web services call, you could have what happens on the endpoint being transactional, but there's no way for you to actually have a set of web services call all participating in the same transaction. That is crucial for the future of web services because if you want to have web services world where all your supply chain management and so on is managed by web services, you want to be able to do things like, okay, I wanted to build a customer for it and so on, but I couldn't do a shipment because I didn't have the part in the inventory, and so everything rolls back. And mm. and in the future of web services, you're doing things like distributed transactions and such. Today in web services, uh, there's just the beginning. It's called GXA, where it's a standard for extending web services to support transactions. Web services today don't have an easy way of propagating security credentials. Is this going to so, is this going to be a web service consortium agreed upon standard, or is this a Microsoft thing? Do you know, it's a Microsoft IBM thing. Aha. Uh-huh. And so it's something that IBM and Microsoft are working on. Oh, so they're tr- Some, but they're going to try to standardize it through the consortium now. Oh, absolutely! It's yeah. all going to be uh, standard and so on, and even guys like Sun are going to have to implement it. Right. If they want to be ahead of the game. And so I think that in the future, looking, say, three to five years in the future, enterprise services are going to be the foundation on which the next generation of web services and middleware technologies are built on. And you are going to be able to propagate enterprise services transactions or actually any kind of other service like publishing events and so on, all the way from your middle tier components to somebody else's middle tier, independent of the actual component technologies that they use to actually implement their own side. 
Well, Juval, do you have any uh, last thoughts that you want to uh, impart on us before we say goodnight? I think anybody who is serious about being productive and achieving high quality in .NET, in today's very aggressive environments where you have ever-shortening deadlines, uh, meager budgets, ever-increasing complexity in your applications, it just doesn't pay to reinvent the wheel and implement plumbing on your own. Developers should focus on the business logic, on adding value to what the customer wants, and not on doing things like managing transactions or security or hooking up subscribers to publishers and so on. And I believe that enterprise services is key to success in many such situations. So uh, let me ask you this. Would you be interested in teaching an enterprise services class for Franklin's Net? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's talk about that. Our guest has been Javal Lowy from San Jose, California. Javal, thank you very much on behalf of the listening audience, from myself and Mark. Yes, thank you so much, Javal. It's been a most illuminating conversation tonight. My pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, keep on rocking with .NET. Bye-bye. Good night.